Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of They Live By Film. Uh, today, it was just going to be me, good old Zach Bryant here. Um, if you've listened to the last episode with Kurosawa, where Chris did the episode by himself, um, Adam's on a little bit of a break, much needed one. So me and him are just going to be doing these kind of solo casts to kind of just for you to get to know us. Um, so he did one of his favorite directors, Kurosawa. So I thought I would finally suit and do one, which anyone who's listened to this podcast knows my favorite, which is John Carpenter. Um, so we're going to get into this uh, just to kind of go over a couple ground rules of what I'm going to be ranking. Uh, for him, he does have some short films. He has some music videos where, he, you know, he's done that for years. A lot of that's not going to be in here. So it's going to be, I believe, 23 total items. If I'm going to double check. It looks, yeah, 23 items. Um, this will include all of his feature films. This will include uh, any of his TV movies. He has a few of those. And it will also include um, his two episodes of Masters of Horror. And some people may say that's unfair, but I actually have one of his Masters of Horror ranked pretty high. Anyone's familiar with John Carpenter can probably already guess which one. So I thought, it, you know, if it's better than several of his movies, then it deserves a place on here. Student films, stuff like that, aren't going to be on here. Asterisk needed. Um, but for the most part, if you did short films or anything like that, they're not going to be included because those really don't seem fair. These were like, these are all. These are probably not the best, and I actually haven't even seen all of them. I, I've wanted to. Some of them were, seem to be a little hard to find, and some, uh, and I just haven't gotten around to them. Um, but I don't want to take up too much time before we get in. I, I know we're here for the meat and potatoes of this, so we got 30 things to go through. And if I start to ramble, I apologize. I'm going to try not to make this where I have to edit it too much, because um, I'm lazy, and I'd rather have this out for you guys uh, here so we can do it every week. And if, depending on how much time we have left, uh, I may be doing another episode of this. Uh, I, I've been trying to think of who I want to do. And I've actually thought about doing a multiple episode where I'll be doing a couple directors that have just short filmographies like Bong Joon-ho. But we'll have to see how that goes. Um, so no promises there. But, you know, look out for that. That may be coming down the pipeline. So, before we, so let's get started. We're going to be ranking uh, John Carpenter from... In my opinion, his worst to his best. Once again, if you like any of these movies that are low, you know, it's obviously just my opinion. I, I'm i just some guy. Enjoy what you enjoy. Uh, I probably do have a couple hot takes in here. So, you know, obviously it's just one guy's opinion. Enjoy what you like. He's a great director. I do want to kind of touch on that. Um, John Carpenter is kind of the first director I ever remember watching. Uh, but one of the earliest memories I have is actually my mom showing me his uh, his Halloween when I was like three years old. I was super young, scared me to death. So he's really, to me, my introduction to film in general, and he's kind of stayed, some people could say it's nostalgia or whatever, but he's really stayed as one of my favorite directors this entire time. So I, I feel like I would be doing a disservice not to just talk about him, uh, go in depth, so... Strap in, enjoy, and let's give it a go. All right, so for number 23, and it's a little disappointing to start on this end, but this is actually the final film he did in 2010, which is his film, The Ward. It was the only, it's one of very few things he's done in the 21st century. Um, 
And I think some people kind of say, well, the ward's not that bad. And I'll kind of go into why I have it ranked uh, dead last. And a big reason for that is just it doesn't feel like a John Carpenter movie. Like, even like the next three or four on this list, while I'm not crazy about them, at least feel like John Carpenter films. Um, John Carpenter was famous for Panavision, and this movie is not shot in Panavision, so it already doesn't really look like his kind of thing. Um, and the movie is watchable. I'm not going to sit here and pretend it's just like this god-awful watchable thing, but it is boring. Um, it, it, just to kind of go through what it's about, for anyone who hasn't watched it, uh, I'll read the one that's letterboxed. Um, Kristen, a troubled young woman, is captured by the police after burning down a farmhouse and is locked into the North Bend Psychiatric Hospital. Soon she begins to suspect that the place has a dark secret at its core, and she's determined to find out what it is. You know, it's that, it's that psych ward type of horror film, and you know, I, I can watch them, but they all sort of play out the same. And this one doesn't really have many surprises for the subgenre. It, you know, I'm obviously this would just be speculating on my part, but as much as uh, his previous film before this, Ghosts of Mars, was hated, I think I almost feel like he made it one for a paycheck. John Carpenter's always been honest that he does things for money, and maybe just said so that wouldn't be the last thing he ever did as a feature film. Um, Amber Heard plays in this, so, you know, full disclosure, because I know that's been a bit hot-button topic. So if you don't want to even support that, that's understandable. And honestly, you're not missing out on much. So that's my feelings on the ward, and we're going to move on to number 22. So for number 22, um, John Carpenter actually did a couple remakes. Of course, his most famous one is the remake of uh, A Thing from Another World, which we'll talk about that way down the line. Um but he actually did another one, which was the 1995 film Village of the Damned. Uh, an American village is visited by some unknown life uh, form, which leaves a woman of the village pregnant. Nine months later, the babies are born and they all look normal, but they take the, it doesn't take the parents long to realize their kids are not human or humane. This is just bad. Like, it's a really bad movie. Like, it's not boring. It's got a good cast. It's got Christopher Reeves in it, and it just feels a little bit lazy, in all honesty. And, you know, I, I take up for Carpenter in the 90s, because he does get some flack in that. But this movie just kind of bores you a bit. Like, nothing's really creepy about it. It feels like everything takes forever to get started. And the movie's not even that long, so it doesn't feel like it should take forever. But it's just a... It's, it's a movie that's got a couple okay scenes... And it's got a couple bit, a little bit of creepy imagery. Not a lot, though. And that's really all I can really say about it. There's not a lot to go on with Village of the Damned. Um, I think it's one of those ones people forget he even did because it's just. I mean, it's in Panavision, so it's got that going for it, I guess. So uh, before I ramble too much, let's move on to number twenty-one: Memoirs of an Invisible Man. So this one's another one of those ones that people kind of forget he did and i can see why it does have a lot of carpenter elements in it when you watch it like if you know it's carpenter you can pick up the things you're used to seeing there's some fun elements to this sam neill is great like i'm glad this movie exists for no other reason than to just allow um sam neill to play in uh in mouth of madness uh, a couple few years later uh, this one's about, uh, after a freak accident, an invisible yuppie runs for his life from the treacherous CIA official while trying to cope with his new life. You can kind of tell, and I believe if you go and look at like the behind the scenes stuff, 
there was a really a big push to kind of make this as much of a comedy as possible. I think Carpenter looked at this as a comedy. And Chevy, him and Chevy Chase couldn't get along or couldn't agree on a tone they wanted to go for. And the movie kind of shows that. Like, you're working with Invisible Man movie, and we've seen this as a horror film tons of times. We just had one for 2020. We, of course, had one from, you know, it's, all, it's 80 years old now. We've had Hollow Man. We've had all of this. So to go into more comedy route is a lot like... I'm going to say a lot of the Invisible Man movies kind of go more into that comedy too, but I think that would have been a little bit more of a breath of fresh air. It would have been a little bit more different for Carpenter, but I, it sounds like to me that Chevy Chase didn't, he kind of wanted to lose that comedy um, feel to him for at least a little bit. You know, we see that all the time now with like Brian Cranston doing Breaking Bad, with Jordan Peele doing Get Out and Us, with... Um, uh, Adam Sandler doing Uncut Gems, you know, I, and I get that. I, I get the idea of comedy guys wanting to prove they can do more than just comedy. And like I said, there's comedy in this, but you can kind of feel that there's like this tug of war. And while I can at least recommend it as like, hey, let me watch this while I clean sort of movie, I, I can't imagine this being very high on a bunch of people's list, but maybe I'm wrong. But uh, that's my feelings on that. So now we're going to get into our top 20. Uh, number 20 is his second outing for Masters of Horror. I think it was season two, if I'm correct. Actually, one thing I wanted to do, uh, I just realized I forgot to do it. I wanted to talk about uh, what I have for each release of this. Because all these come in slightly different releases. You'll hear a lot of overlap from one company. But just to go over, the Ward has a pretty standard Amaray. Um it's fine. It, it's actually, I think it's one of the few I have, and just that's not a boutique label or anything. Village of the Damned was a Scream Factory release, and uh, Invisible Man. I want to say it was Scream Factory, but it was under the Shout Factory label. I don't know if it was Scream Factory or Shout Selects because I know he's got one on Shout Selects, but I think that that one's coming up. But um, and then we have Pro Life, uh, which actually I have that one. I have seen most of Masters of Horror, but I don't have the big box sets. I have one for first season. But I actually have both of these on an individual DVD because finding the Blu-ray for some of these is ridiculous. And to find, like, I don't even know if season two even got one. I know season one did. I know season one got uh, Blu-rays, but I don't know if season two did. And I think that's where pro-life is. But to kind of go over this one... Um, uh, Angelique, a traumatized 15-year-old, is taken to an abortion clinic to end her pregnancy. However, her deeply religious father and three brothers are out to make sure the baby lives. You know, when I, I watched this last year, and it's weirdly, <laughs> with everything going on with Roe v. Wade, weird one to kind of read now, um, because, you know, uh, back then we kind of looked at it like, well, yeah, abortion's a thing, there are people against it, but we we kind of understand that, you know. This is a fairly, not fairly normal, but it's it's occurrence that happens regularly to some extent. Um, and I, I'd love to actually watch this now uh, after all this has happened just to kind of see how it's aged for me. But I'm going to be talking about this more from the perspective of when I watched it last year. So this movie isn't, it's not completely awful. The issue with pro-life is I think it kind of wastes its potential. Uh, and it doesn't really have a clear idea what it wants to be. Like, 
it mixes it, it's kind of like this greatest hits from carpenter in a way it's got a very much an assault on precinct 13 uh vibe to it it's got a thing vibe to it um you know it, it's got these elements to it and i don't think they necessarily work together i think it kind of screws with its tone quite a bit uh, Ron Perlman's in this, and I will give so much credit to Ron Perlman. He does an excellent job, uh, and it, I always like him as an actor. Uh, actually, I think the last time we haven't been that long since we talked about him on this podcast, since we talked about him with Kronos, but great actor. He does good stuff here, and there's fun shootout elements in this. You know, it's still got Carpenter's always, even with a low budget like film, can still do action, and it looks fine, and it does well. I just think it could have been done better i think it just needed more like we're going to talk about his other master of horror episode here soon and i feel like he had more time with that one or he just like he had a better grasp of what he wanted to do this one feels very much throwing you know uh spaghetti at the wall seeing what sticks and some some of it does but most of it doesn't so we're going to move on to number 19 which is Dark Star. Uh, just go through this with Dark Star. I actually have a Japanese release for this, and it's a beautiful release. It's absolutely gorgeous. I need to go through the special features of it, but it's one of my favorite releases I have for Carpenter. I don't know the company right off, but if you look up Japanese release for Dark Star, I think it's their only one, and it's better than anything we have in the U.S. by far. Um, so let's talk. So I'll read what Dark Star is about: a low-budget sci-fi uh, sci satire that focuses on a group of scientists whose mission is to destroy unstable planets. Twenty years into their mission, they have a battle for their alien mascot that resembles a beach ball, as well as a sensitive, intelligent bombing device that starts to question the meaning of its existence. Crazy movie. Uh, so, in case you didn't know, John Carpenter uh, did this with Dan O'Bannon. If Dan O'Bannon sounds familiar, but you can't place it, he is the guy who wrote Aliens, and it'll say he wrote Dead and Buried. He uh, he did not. That's a whole story for another day. But of course, he's uh, famous for Return of the Living Dead. Uh, they ended up having to fall out because of this, but I I will say uh, this was a student film. Well, at least started out as a student film for both of them. Um, and then they got a producer, uh, I'm trying to actually look up who the producer is, so I don't get that wrong, Jack Harris, Jack, uh, Jack H. Harris, uh, had given them some more money to make this a feature film, and there's a quote, and I don't know if Carpenter said it, or someone else said it, or maybe Dan O'Bannon, um, but it was like, this, this might be the best student film ever made, but it's the worst feature film ever made, and I won't go that far, it's not even the worst carpenter's filmography but it does have a very much a this weird mix of this seems like a student film mixed with okay it's a little bit more ambitious than a student film but it doesn't if this would have been cool to see one of them remake later down the line because it does it has some like really cool ideas it looks really good like i don't know it, it it's it, it it feels very much like a stoner comedy and i, I you know this was probably both times where both these people were stoners so that kind of makes sense but um, if nothing else, the reason I am so glad this exists is for, uh, the song at the end, uh, oh man, I gotta Google something, Arizona, Arizona, uh, Arizona, you're gonna, this is professional, man, uh, 
Benson, Arizona. I knew it started with a B. I just couldn't remember what it was. Benson, Arizona. Fun song. Very nice country western kind of thing. Um, of course, we'll get into Carpenter's want for his entire career to do a western. And he only sort of gets to do it. So, um it's worth watching it's i don't it's a interesting little movie and it's got a great ending it's got some iconic shots nick castle's in it too so if you want to hey what did he do before halloween there you go um i mean i think it's worth checking out i don't know if it's gonna be something you love but i I, here's the thing i know we're kind of early and i'm already talking about kind of a lot of good things i don't think there's anything completely atrocious in carpenter's filmography there's definitely ones that I don't plan on rewatching anytime soon, but for the most part, there's always something very inventive about them, or there's something very interesting about them. And, you know, I think that's sometimes that's worth more than anything else. And I think Dark Star is interesting, even if it's not something I'm going to rush to rewatch, I think it's an interesting movie. Um, so now we're going to move on to his first TV movie on the list, which is Elvis from 1979. This biopic traces Elvis Presley's life from his impoverished childhood to his uh, his rise to stardom from the triumphant conquering of of Las Vegas. So this is actually the first time uh, him and Kurt Russell have worked together. Um, And they will, of course, have a great career together. Um, This is... Oh, and Kurt Russell's father's in this. I just noticed that. So... This is actually also appropriate since we just now got a bi- another biopic of Elvis. It uh, came from uh, good old Lerman, or how do you say his name, the one who did Romeo and Juliet, Craig Gatsby, that guy. He just did one, um, and I have no interest in it, and I'll be honest, it's because I'm I'm kind of like, well, I already got this one, and I'm not a huge Elvis fan. His music, you know, I can appreciate some of it. I'm not a huge Elvis lover. And as far as release on this one, before I forget... This one is the shout the the shout selects one. Uh, this is uh, one they did. This movie is long. I think the main cut of this is like three out two and a half three hours long, um, and it was because it was a TV movie at the time. And you know, TV movies have that sort of limitation to them, and that's not always bad. There's a couple TV movies on here I have ranked fairly high. This one, I think, this is just for me. This will be kind of the most boring one you'll hear from me. It's just because. Elvis doesn't really mean a whole lot to me. Um, I think the movie is really well done in a lot of aspects. I think Kurt Russell is a fantastic Elvis. As far as Elvis performances I've seen, he's my favorite. I think there's some good shots in here, even for a TV movie. Um, TV movies were kind of a weird thing, and I'll touch on this for just a second uh, before I go on too long. But like, I think of TV movies now compared to what they were in like the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it's strange to me because... Some of them were fantastic, and they could have easily been theatrical movies. And honestly, it's a little weird that we've kind of had this issue with trying to get medium-budget uh, movies that are like your crime movies and stuff into theaters. And it's like, well, we could, you know, just make better TV movies. But, you know, it, TV movies have changed a lot. And, you know, so it's a little hard to say this and not have a little bit of a connotation to it. But... Elvis is, if you're an Elvis fan, I highly recommend Elvis. It's, I'm going to keep saying Elvis a bunch, and that's going to get really annoying. But I highly recommend this movie. Um, I think, you know, this was made so quick after Elvis died. I actually got to look up what year it was, because it couldn't have been one. Um, Elvis Presley. Of course, I apologize. I got to put in Elvis Presley, not just Elvis. Um, he died in 1977. 
which I should have done, but I didn't. Sorry to my aunt who is obsessed with Elvis. Um, so this was made in 1979, probably filmed in 78. So we're talking about a time where we're looking at a very romantic version of Elvis. Like this isn't really going to go over a lot of his issues as a human being. And that's not to sit there and, you know, sit there and rag on Elvis. He, he was a complicated individual who lived a complicated life. Um, but, I mean, it, it, if you're looking at a very positive performance of him that's mostly just going to be talking about you know if it's anything negative just that he's kind of a quirky guy and that he had definitely had some issues but nothing that's going to talk about him and his um grooming habits but that's another thing i'm not going to get into that but you know so it depends on what you want out of a biopic this has very much of if you've seen dewey cox um and you know the formula this follows that formula and in fairness, this came out long before that formula started getting criticized. So take that for what you will. But we're going to move on before I talk about Elvis too long. So we're going to talk about something that I think was, I think did hit uh, theaters. I'm not going to check it because I got, I'll make this so terrible. Uh, but it ended up, it was, it seemed, it was supposed to be kind of a pilot, I believe. Carpenter with, it started, especially start with Halloween 3, really wanted to do, this isn't Halloween 3, he didn't direct that. By the way, none of those are on here. He didn't direct them, not his writing stuff. Um, but he seemed to have really wanted to do the horror anthology. And of course, we talked about uh, an episode of Masters of Horror, which he was a part of. Um, and of course, I just mentioned Halloween 3, which he was a big part of. Kind of in between those, he did a 1993 film with Toby Hooper, called Body Bags, and he directed two two of them, and I think Toby Hooper directed one, and this is, they're all solid entries, I will say that, both the ones Carpenter does and the one um, Hooper does are all really good, uh, let me read what this is, three tales, each more terrifying than the last, a woman who's stalked by an axe-wielding maniac, a man who plays the pays the ultimate price for beautiful head of hair, and a vision of life seen through the eyes of a killer. So, this is a little bit of an anthology. It runs for like a hundred minutes, I think. Yeah, uh, about ninety-four minutes. So you, each each one gets about not a thirty minutes, and then of course there's an in betweener. They feel very episodic, um, and the kind of in betweener is actually kind of a crypt keeper thing. Uh, John Carpenter plays this dead mortician, who you know pulls out the body of the person who's dead, and then you kind of get the story of their death. Um, which is a little spoilery. Uh, it's kind of kind of gives you a heads up what's happening. But I I, I don't think that away because Carpenter not the best actor. But this is really fun. Like there's there's a lot of funness with body bags, even if they're a little uneven. I really like, and this is just me as a big slasher guy. I really like the first one about a woman. It, Carpenter's going back to doing a slasher film, which we can argue he kind of does that with Christine in a way. But this is the first time, like, hey, there's this man chasing this woman. And it's not a TV movie. We'll get into that later. Um, but, you know, this this is feels like him kind of experimenting with what slashers have become and ha how he kind of puts his own spin on it. And, you know, we're talking about the guy who, of course, popularized the slasher film. Um, so that's really cool. I really like that when he actually like name drops Haddonfield. So it seems very loving, like a very loving gesture for uh, slashers and stuff. So I think that was really cool. Uh, the second one for the hair is interesting. It's, it's a little bit more of a horror comedy in a way. And it, I, I swear, I think it's the one that Simpsons sort of rag uh, parody a little bit, but not exactly in a Treehouse of horror episode where uh, 
Homer gets a hair transplant, and it, actually, it seems like they mix two of these, and I'll get to that in a second. It seems like they missed the second and third one of this, where uh, he gets Snake's hair, the, the the robber guy in The Simpsons, after he's executed. This is a, this is a treehouse, so it's not canon, and it forces Homer to become like a killer for Snake, who wants to get revenge on the people who sent him to the electric chair. Um, it's it's very much like that, and the reason I bring it up like the third one because third one is a uh, good old Mark Hamill is I want to say he's a baseball player. It's been a little bit since I've seen this, but he has to get an eye transplant. And the eye is someone who is of a killer. And I'm actually surprised. I don't think Carpenter did this one, but you'd almost expect him to just because of the eyes of Lord uh, of Mars, which won't be on here because he only wrote it. He didn't direct it. But on that one, um, you know, uh, Faye Dunaway's character is, has the ability to see the killer before he does things and she kind of becomes this unwillingly almost prophet type character uh prophetic in in that way um but now I, I, if i remember correctly it is hooper who does that one uh, and it seems like hooper from the directing that i remember but anyway that, that that seems like that they're all kind of fun to watch i wouldn't say even if i were to put these separately and put them on the ranking i would probably put them all around together if i was just going to rank them uh, it would probably be the Axe Maniac one, um, the Eyes of the Killer one, and then the Hair one. But they're all not that much different. It's worth the watch. They have some great. It has some great um, character actors in it, like Stacy Keach. Um, it has, of course, Mark Hamill in it, Tom Arnold, um, Peter Jason, Wes Craven, and Sam Raimi uh, actually make cameos in it. It seemed like a very loving thing, and it's a little disappointing this didn't really take off because I think if they had had more time. You know, I think this could have been something interesting uh, as far as release goes. This is, of course, this is a really early Scream Factory release. It took me forever to find one with a um, with a slip on it because I wanted to get all the ones that had available Carpenter slips for them. But uh, yeah, we're checking out. Not not amazing, but pretty decent. All right, this is going to be kind of my first hot take because a lot of people will put this as one of Carpenter's worst, and I don't have it at worst. I think uh, let me see what number we're at actually. We are in, we're at 16. So we are at number 16. And I have his 2001 film, Ghosts of Mars. Um, Malayne Ballard is a hard-nosed police chief in the year 2025. Holy shit, we're getting close to that. We still haven't colonized Mars. Uh, she and the police snatch, squ uh, snatch squad are sent to Mars to apprehend dangerous criminal James Williams. Uh, Mars has been occupied by humans for some time and they have set up mining facilities jesus so long what this is about the mining activities on mars have unleashed the spirit of alien beings who gradually possess the bodies of the workers it soon turns out that catching the dangerous fugitive takes a backseat as the alien spirits begin to rid the planet of the invaders okay so that's a long description of what is a really simple movie uh and the best way i would describe this is it's an escape from Mars movie. And it, from my, I don't know if it's ever been confirmed that's what the idea of the film was or it's just always kind of been speculated that way because um, Ice Cube plays the criminal James Williams who has a really boring name for, you know, Carpenter villain. Of course, it's very Western-ish in that sense. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, you can imagine this film as a Snake Plissken story and honestly, it's a better movie if you do that. And I think what really comes to the issue of this movie is tone. And I, I don't know, um, how, there are certain actors in this film who really seem to understand the tone. 
uh, Natasha Histring does, um, Pam Greer does, and Jason Statham does. They uh, credit to Jason Statham. Like I really think he understood what this movie was supposed to be. And I think there was like this over, like, I, you know, I think about this too. Like we talk about the escape movies. I, I think if somebody had tried to make one now, they wouldn't understand the tone properly. And that probably sounds a little vague when somebody's just trying to give a little bit of a review, but it, it does have some truth to it. Um, and I just realized I'm almost at 30 minutes. Good God, this is going to be a long podcast. And I apologize. I'm going to try to get through some of these a little bit quicker. Um, but the thing that kind of messes with Ghosts of Mars a little bit is just this uneven tone throughout. I think it's supposed to be very unserious. I think, you know, it's supposed, and it has like great action sequences. There's an action sequence near the end of the film that's so well done. It's, and, you know, the thing that, you know, Carpenter's looking at, I think, is, you know, with this being on the Red Planet, it can it has these Western elements to it. And, of course, you're going to hear this a lot about how he wanted to make a Western throughout his career and didn't really get to. But, you know, he'd always slip it into movies like this. Um, and actually, if you want, like, a good what this movie was supposed to be, um, Zack Snyder came out with Army of the Dead um, last year. And to me, that came off very much like what this movie was supposed to be. Even the main zombie in Army of the Dead plays the main alien ghost possessed invader, uh, Richard Citrone. I think that's how you say his last name. Uh, he plays both characters and he does an excellent job. He's always an intimidating villain when he's given the chance. And I mean, it's it's one of those films that's incredibly, incredibly flawed. And it can be sometimes kind of boring, but it's got a lot of fun to it. And I and I think it was just put out at the wrong time. I don't know if this will ever be one of these films that's looked at later, kind of like uh, In the Mouth of Badness was, or Half of His Career from the 80s, and be reevaluated to be something great. But you never know. I mean, that's that's kind of been a, the habit in Carpenter's career. This movie's now 21 years old. Um, and it'll be interesting to see because it does have a fan base, not a huge one. It's not like some of the other ones, but it, it's got a fan base. All right. So now we're going to go on number 15. We're going to keep with the hot takes for a couple minutes, a couple more entries. Um, this is a popular one. I've seen people put this in his top three or his top five. This is, and I'm going to don't worry. I haven't forgotten to tell you what the movie is. Uh, th this is, this is all, you know, for the effect, of course. And I like this movie. I want to put that out there. I like it. But it, it it's a, hey, it's October. Let me throw this on sort of movie. Not a, I love this movie to pieces. I can watch it at any time. And it's 1980s The Fog. Um, strange things begin to occur as a tiny California coastal town prepares to commemorate its centenary. Uh, inanimate objects spring eerily to life. Reverend Malone stumbles upon a dark secret about the town's founding. Radio announcer Stevie witnesses a uh, mystical fire, and hitchhiker Elizabeth discovers the mutilated corpse of a fisherman. Then a mysterious uh, iridescent fog transcends upon the village, and more people start to die. I don't know what it is with Letterbox putting these entire <laughs> movies on here. Um, but anyway, that's the fog. I think people kind of get the idea of the fog. I'm sure plenty of people have seen it. And just for full disclosure, I have two copies of the fog. I have... Um, the Screen Factory Steelbook, and I have the Studio Canal Steelbook, and I will, yes, I'll go get the fucking Steelbook for the 4K, because why not, why, why not own this movie that I gave a 7 out of 10 at for three different copies, because I have a John Carpenter problem, uh, and I'm, I've accepted that. Well, let's talk about The Fog a little bit. 
and why I don't have it higher. I mean, I don't think 15 is a bad spot, but I, I get a lot of questions when people have seen my rankings and I have it kind of low. The Fog is a good seasonal movie, but if I can't watch it all year round or feel like watching all year round, I think that says a lot about it. This is uh, this was Carpenter's first time horror right after Halloween. It's a couple years afterwards. It's in, it, And, you know, it, it sits in between uh, Halloween and The Thing um, as far as his chronology goes. And, uh, well, horror chronology, I should say. There's, this, of course, Skip from New York in there as well. He had a great run in the 80s. But The Fog is a, a little bit interesting in the sense that it's got some great imagery in it. It has some good tense moments. But I, it's just, it's it does, never feels like anything special. And I don't have, know if that has to do with it being 42 years old now. And it just doesn't really have anything special going on for it anymore. And it never transcended anything. It's just a fun little movie. I don't have a ton to say about it. I'd recommend checking it out, you know, sometime in the middle of October to throw it on. It, you'll have fun. All right. Number 14. We're going to go on to uh, the second entry in his spiritual um, trilogy, uh, the Apocalypse trilogy. And his second one he did for that was Prince of Darkness. I have a friend who absolutely adores this movie. Uh, I do not. I like this movie. Uh, I think it's I think it's fun. Um, but I think the characters are piss poor. Um, now, Donald Pleasant and Victor Wong are the best characters in this film. They do such a good job in it. Um, and that and they they're but beyond them, the film is really held back by its kind of lackluster characters like when you look at like there's this can be very much compared to the thing before i get in let me just actually this actually has a short uh synopsis so that's great a research team finds a mysterious cylinder in a deserted church it opens it could mean the end of the world um it has a very much a very thingish vibe and that it's a sense of paranoia with this group of people set in one location so it's kind of vague but it does have and of course they're all they're in the same trilogy um, spiritual trilogy. So, um, let me think. I've been talking for a while. I apologize, guys. I think I'm at, let me see where I'm at. I'm at 34 minutes. So I apologize. So with Prince of Darkness, it's very much going into this science versus religion thing. And it kind of puts them together in that sense, um, of this kind of argument. And especially between Donald Pleasance, who is the preacher and Victor Wong, who is the professor. So they're trying to get the scientific explanation for this thing going on in the church and full disclosure, put in a vacuum. Some of Carpenter's creepiest stuff is in Prince of Darkness. Like take any horror film and you want to put the, like all the scares in a vacuum. There are several from Prince of Darkness that would be high, if not number one. And the ending to this movie is completely eerie. I've always said, you know, if Stephen King is criticized for his endings, John Carpenter is a master at them, in all seriousness. Like, when it comes to horror movies, Carpenter knew how to end a horror movie. And we'll get into one I think is a little weak, but st- and we'll get back to Stephen King speaking of that because of that. Uh, but, you know, it's a great, great ending. And I do actually want to be re-watching this one soon because I can imagine this, you know, it really just hitting me right this time. Like, I gave it a good score, but I don't love the movie. I like the movie, and I want to love it because it has so much good stuff going for it. 
Um, it even has uh, good old Alice Cooper in it for a little bit. Uh, he plays a small part. I guess a small part. I guess you could argue that. But, yeah, that's Prince of Darkness. Uh, as far as releases go, I once again have two releases. I have the 4K Studio Canal Steelbook, and I have the Screen Factory Steelbook. Both are excellent. Seriously, pick them up. They're great-looking steals, great-looking releases from Screen Factory. All right. So now we're going to get into a TV movie he did in 1978 called Someone's Watching Me. We are at, I want to say, we are at, we're at 13. So this is number 13. We're getting close to the top 10, guys. A young woman moves to a high-rise apartment building and soon begins to be tormented by an unknown stalker who seems to know her every move. So I'm going to talk about Brian De Palma for a second. Brian De Palma is, of course, famous for basically riffing um, Hitchcock. Uh, not riffing, I guess. He just really likes Hitchcock, and he likes to show his appreciation by, you know, being that cover artist. And I love De Palma for it. I think De Palma's great. I'm a huge fan of his. But the, but this is kind of Carpenter doing the same thing in 1978. Of course, based on the year, this was the same year Halloween came out. So this is much, very much taking on that Hitchcockian thriller horror type of thing. And uh, as a... Not a bad catch. Charles Cypher's in it. Uh, Andrea Barbo, I want to say is how you say her name. I've never been able to say that correctly, so I apologize. Uh, both really, really good in it. I love Charles Cypher's, apparently. Uh, Lauren Hutton is in it. Um, this is just kind of a fun little movie. Like It's not going to blow you away if you've seen Hitchcock, but if you want to kind of see what Carpenter can do with Hitchcock, Really recommend it. Screen Factory has a release in it. I think you can watch it in widescreen or full screen, uh, if I remember correctly. It's been a little while, but I believe both are on there. Really recommend. Of course, I recommend the full screen. Uh, Carpenter, anytime he can, watch the full screen uh, because he puts so much in frame. Um, but yeah, so we're going to move on to uh, number 11, which I kind of referenced a few minutes ago when we were talking about Stephen King where we're going to talk about the movie Christine. So a lot of you are probably familiar with Christine. It's a very popular book. It's a very popular movie, but I'll kind of go through it anyway. Geeky student Arnie Cunningham falls for Christine, a rusty 1958 Plymouth Fury, and becomes obsessed with restoring the classic automobile to her former glory. As the car changes, so does Arnie, whose newfound confidence turns to arrogance behind the wheel of his exotic beauty. Arnie's girlfriend, Lee, and the best friend, Dennis, reach out to him only to be meet with fury like no other. Somebody had a lot of fun writing these long-ass uh, synopses or whatever. Uh, but anyway, so Christine, people know Christine. It's very popular. Great shots by Carpenter. Like, I, I one of my favorite shots in his filmographies in this film, where we see the car on fire, um, with the blacked out windows chasing someone. And it, I've seen that in other movies. I remember it being a little bit ripped on in, uh, I keep saying ripped on, and I don't know if that's correct. And paid homage to, Let's. I think that's the better word I've been looking for. Paid homage to, um, with a Stranger's Prey at Night a few years ago, which people hate that movie. I actually really like that movie a lot. I think it's really cool. But they actually play tribute. Tribute, that's a good word. That's the word I'm looking for, tribute. Uh, to Christine, of course, many other horror films, but um, there's a reason. Christine's a beautiful looking film. It's a fun little film. Um, and, you know, this was Carpenter a year after The Thing, where The Thing was widely hated, uh, didn't do well in the box office after he got a pretty decent chunk of change. So it was him 
the Chris Stain's the very opposite of the thing in a lot of way, but it still has a lot of Carpenter's uh, trademark to it. Of course, it looks beautiful. It has the you know has that uh, it has the Panavision look to it, um, but it's it's not very violent. Uh, they actually, if I remember correctly, had a hard time. They were worried about getting a PG rating. Think of the time it was, you know, where now we get some terrible PG thirteen horror films. Back then, you wanted an R rating. So that's why there's a lot of cursing in this movie. Like there is a lot just to guarantee they'd get an R rating for it. Um, but a lot of Adventist stuff. And I, of course, Carpenter was asked, uh, he gave a great response, get, was asked why he decided to do Christine after the thing. And of course his answer was he wanted some money. Um, a great answer by him. And it's very true. But the thing I, and I think this is good proof where, you know, people kind of want to criticize Carpenter for how much he is very money minded. This movie's great. Like, yeah, he may have done it for money, but he didn't pull any punches. Like, the practical effects for this look great. The car is built as such a character. Um, you know, and I kind of, before, I don't think the ending is bad. I kind of, I think I referenced that, that I thought it was bad. I don't think it's bad. I think it's his weakest horror ending, if we're, if we're just counting his feature films. Uh, it's not bad. And I don't even think, if I remember, it's been a long time since I've read Christine, but I think it's fairly different from the ending of the actual movie because the whole thing is different because in the book, Christine is controlled by the former owner's ghost, blah, 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 where the ghost is a little bit more mysterious here, which I like, I like both. I, I remember liking the book. I need to reread it. But I, I never had, this isn't one where people, I think I hear people talk about sometimes that the movie is so much better than the book. I like the book. I like Stephen King. Uh, even if I criticize Stephen King, I like Stephen King a lot. And while having John Carpenter work on a Stephen King book is really cool. Um, I wish he had done more because I think he did such a great job. You know, he changed quite a bit, but I don't think he ever lost the spirit of himself or Stephen King. And sometimes that can be the hardest thing to do. And I think that's the trouble people have when they adapt to King is they can't balance it well. Um, so we're going to move on to our top 10. Yes, we've gotten through 13 and we are number 10. This is, uh, speaking of hot takes, my number 10 is Escape from L.A. from 1996. Uh, this has reached my top 10. This was uh, when I was going through my Carpenter rewatch years ago. Um, this was one I had seen when I was a kid. I didn't remember it. And I was kind of nervous to watch because of how negative people talk about this movie. Um, oh, yes, and... Good God, I have forgotten a couple, and I'm actually going to go back. So Ghost of Mars, uh, Indicator has a great release of this. Highly recommend it. I know I forgot that one. Uh, Christine also has an Indicator release. I don't have that one, I don't think. No, I don't have that one. I want that one, though, but it's hard to find, um, at least a limited edition version. The version I have for Christine is the 4K Steelbook. It's an okay-looking Steelbook. It's 4K looks good. Um, Escape from L.A. actually just got a 4K release from um from paramount i believe it was paramount um i don't have that one either but i do have the screen factory version uh of this one so let's go over this uh snake is back this time a cataclysmic tebler hit what is it Tem tembler okay whatever hits los angeles turning into an island the president views the shake as a sign from above expels los angeles from the from the country and makes it a penal colony for those found guilty of moral crimes. When his daughter, part of the resistance movement, steals the control unit for the doomsday weapon, Snake again gets tapped to save the day. 
Full disclosure, this is pretty much the same movie as the first one. Escape from New York is, it's it's the same movie. It's There's just a few little differences, uh, but it's still so much fun. Like, yeah, it's Carpenter redoing Escape from New York, but putting it in L.A. and making slight differences. But Escape from New York is an amazing movie. This has also got a great cast. You got uh, Bruce Campbell, Pam Greer, Peter Fonda, um, Steve Buscemi, uh, Stacey Keach. Uh, Robert Carradine actually is in this too. Oh, that's cool. I forgot about that. Um, so a lot of great people are in this movie. Um, of course, Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell is always a star in these films. Um, it's... I'm I, I thinking how I want to go with this. It's just fun. And I, I don't know if I can really stick on that longer than that. That it's just a fun little movie. Um, it, it's kind of fun to see Carpenter do a sequel. He didn't really do those, so... It would have been kind of cool to have this as a trilogy where he escapes from New York, escapes from L.A., and then escapes from Mars. Um, and I think, honestly, it, it's kind of dis- it's kind of disappointing that Snake Plissken has become this very iconic character, especially in Metal Gear. And it's not the same character, but let's, let's be honest here. And it's honestly more surprising that there hasn't been, like, an attempt to rejuvenate this series, either through a reboot or, like, what they're doing now with these these requels, where you know you could have Old Man Snake. I'd pay the shit out of see Old Man Snake movie. Like you know, can you imagine like Logan, but with Kurt Russell playing Snake Plissken one last time? Oh man, that'd be so good. Please don't waste Kurt Russell's life, and at least get him to do that because that would be amazing. Um, he, I think he could still pull it off even at his age. Um, but that's Escape from L.A. It's fun. Um, and it feels like I should say more it being in my top 10, but it's just that fun. And I highly recommend it. Give it a chance if you kind of hated it before, because it does some cool stuff. It does some not cool stuff, but for the most part, you know, it does all right. So we're going to move on to, you know what, guys, I accidentally told you this was top 10. So Christine was number 12. Escape from LA was number 11. Now we're in top 10. I apologize. Letterbox on uh, PC looks a little weird to me because I don't do it much. So, we are going to move on to number 10, uh, which we are going to be doing his second episode. Oh, well, I'm sorry. His first episode, but the second on this list for his Masters of Horror, which is Cigarette Burns from 2005. With a torrid past that haunts him, a movie theater owner is hired to search for the only existing print of a film so notorious that its single screening caused viewers to become homicidally insane. Love the premise. I love, like... The, the, these type of fake films that are put into films. Um, and I'm going to look up this one because I think it was a French one. I should have had this prepared and I apologize. Let's see what it's called. Images. Man, I wish I could look it up. I used to have a poster. I always wanted like the poster of the movie. Um, La Fin Absolute de Monde. I don't know what that fuck that means, but that is the name of it, and I don't even know if I said it right. But, um, yeah, um, just a cool little movie. So I, I like that. I already like the premise. I'm going into it in a very positive way. Um, as far as release goes, 100 releases of the first season of uh, Cigarette Burns. I have an individual release. I swear to God, I only bought to take the picture um, that I had from my complete carpenter set when I finished and I have the box, the little coffin box, which I love. It's the only DVD for that one, though. But I love that box so much. Um, it has all of the first season. It's really cool. Uh, I need to go through and rewatch all of them again. But definitely recommend it. This also has, of course, Norman Reedus, Udo Kair, 
and Christopher Redmond, um, all of which do a great job in this film. Uh, it's an hour long, and it's, like I said, it's good enough to be in Carpenter's top ten. Uh, that's how good Cigarette Burns is. It's got a little bit of a TV element to it at certain scenes, but there is some legitimately creepy stuff in it. Um, it has a good world building in it. It looks great. Um, it's just creepy, and it's so well done. This is, like, when people talk about Masters of Horror, they talk about Cigarette Burns. And most people will sit there and tell you it's the best episode, at least of season one, and I would probably argue the entire show from what I remember. Um, Carpenter really seemed to have wanted this to work, like this anthology to work. And I think he put his best foot forward for um, Cigarette Burns. Uh, this And this is like Carpenter. This is between Ghosts of Mars and The War, like right between them. And to me, this is the perfect ending spot for Carpenter. If there was one thing I'd be proud to go off on, it would be this film. So if you haven't seen it, you haven't watched because it's a TV movie, or a TV episode, seriously watch it. And watch Masters of Horror. It was such a cool show. I, I missed that it didn't continue. It sort of like spiritually continued with um, eight films to die for series. I don't know if anybody actually remembers that. It that lasted a while, and that had some cool stuff to it. I think some really great movies too. But that's always the kind of the double-edged sword with anthologies is we can talk about the great one all day, but if they were all like that, they'd still be around. But uh, cigarette burns really cool so we're gonna move on to number nine uh, i actually just got jealous because chris just saw this in theaters um and i'd love to see this movie in theaters it is 1988's they live it is carpenter's final movie in the 1980s which really solidified that run he had like and we're, by the end of this we'll talk about that run he had in the 80s because it is phenomenal nada a wanderer without meaning in his life discovers a pair of sunglasses capable of of showing the world with, uh, the way it truly is. As he walks down the street of Los Angeles, uh, Nada notices that both the media and the government are compromised as subliminal messages meant to keep the population subdued, and that most of the social elite are skull-faced aliens that bend the world to domination. With this shocking discovery, Nada fights the free humanity from the mind-controlling aliens. Of course, this is famous because of Rowdy Roddy Piper and Keith David had this amazing fight in the film. It's very wrestly. Um, this movie is just so cool. Like, um, and it's kind of scary in the sense that, you know, this was of course happening during Reaganomics. Uh, Carpenter was never one to really talk about politics. I mean, he's very open about it in interviews to an extent, but in his films, you know, he wasn't there to push political ideas. If that's what you took from it, if you read that from him, you know, that was always there, but it was never to sit there and push that. And that's what I love about, um, a lot of genre films from the seventies and eighties they really did well to balance that. But with They Live, uh, this was Carpenter's kind of exception to that, where he really wanted to talk about Reaganomics um, and that he really didn't like the consumerism aspect of America at the time. And my God, how that has gotten worse. Like this was, we're going on 40 years from They Live. Uh, we are at, what is this, 88? So we're looking at 34 years ago. Um that we went through this, uh, that, you know, they were talking about, about the consumerism. They, you know, the commands to reproduce for commercial profit, the keep buying, keep buying, keep buying. And we've really only gotten worse with that. Like, and I, I'm not, I'm not here. I'm sitting here talking about the movies I've bought numerous times, the consumerism of it. I'm guilty of that too. So this isn't me like preaching at anybody. 
this is this is just kind of scary look at yourself um and what it is and they live is so cool for that and honestly i don't think this one was necessarily negatively looked at when carpenter released it it just didn't make a lot of money um i think it made a good first weekend and then it dropped a lot because there's a whole thing where keith david believes that this movie was kind of pushed out because the subject matter carpenter rejects that but um you know, it was it was a cool it's a cool film, and you'll hear that a lot through a lot of his top ten. Is it's just cool. Carpenter had a cool look to everything. This movie is fun. Um, Roddy Piper is awesome. Um, it's got a great ending. I love the use of. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but you see black and white through for all the aliens, and then at the end you get to see them in color, and that is just so jarring, but so well done. Like I, that, that's, it's a great ending. Um, seriously, watch it. It is, and if you're worried about the political thing, I think it's such a fair look at the issues. This is an left or right issue. This is something I think we all need to look at for ourselves: is our our obsession with consumerism, um, and you know how we look upon that. So that is they live. Uh, as far as releases go, this is going to be a lot like the other ones. I have the Screen Factory Steelbook, and I have the. Um, uh, the Studio Canal Steelbook 4K. All right, so now we're on to number eight. Uh, I have a funny story about this one, so we'll get to that in a minute. This was, you know, while Dark Star is considered Carpenter's first film, in a lot of ways, this is his real uh, first movie, and that is Assault on Precinct 13. Um, Alone inhabitants of an abandoned police station are under attack by the overwhelming numbers of a seemingly unstoppable street gang. Uh, this is such a cool movie. Uh, this has so much influence. Uh, Rio Bravo is definitely the biggest influence. This is basically a urbanized remake of Rio Bravo. It's what Dirty Harry was to Westerns. Uh, before uh, Was this before Dirty Harry? Actually, I'm going to look that up because I can't remember what year Dirty Harry came out. Dirty Harry came out in 71 so it wasn't before i couldn't remember i knew it came out in the 70s but yeah it, it's kind of what dirty harry did to westerns and it's a continuation of that um this is to me carpenter's true starting point that everything we know about carpenter the panavision the uh stylized action the you know the use of music and i do want to talk about the use of music i haven't talked about his scores a lot and i need to because you know while i can talk about carpenter as a writer and i can talk about him as a director his passion, even today, and I think back then too, was his sense of music, and his scores are amazing. And this one, the reason I bring this up is when me and my girlfriend um, started dating, uh, she actually, she just listened to random scores she found and she really liked them. And there was this one she could not remember. She had it stuck in her head, and she kept going, dun-dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun-dun, and she'd ask everyone, and I couldn't figure it out either. I hadn't seen Assault in Precinct 13 in so long. And I was like, well, is it the Terminator 2 one? Because that, that was kind of the first one that hit. It was against very similar to Terminator 2. And then when I was going through my Carpenter rewatch last year, um, I threw on a solid Precinct 13. Since I just go ahead and get this out of the way, I have the uh, Shout Factory Steelbook. It's a great steelbook. Um, I really like that one a lot. It's probably my favorite of their steelbook line. Um, but the, the music comes on, and she's in the other room, and she... And I noticed that as soon as she does, I look towards her room and she's running out. And it was like this great relief of where she is pissed because she couldn't figure it out. 
and uh, just a relief that she, you know, it was over because she had been trying to figure it out for a year or two at that point. And uh, I, every time I play it now, she gets so annoyed because she couldn't, she just couldn't solve it. But it, it's the power of his music that even because you know my girlfriend wasn't one who was in the Carpenter or anything. She just found that track and she liked it. I think back in the Pandora days, you know, it would be hey, you like this? Maybe you like this. And I think that's where it kind of stuck around for her. Um, but let's, I'll stop talking about that. Let's talk about the movie. This movie um, has Charles Cyphers in it, has uh, Austin Stoker in it, who all do such a good job. Um, this movie has interestingly complicated and simple characters, which is something uh, Carpenter is really excels at, is his use of a lot of blue-collar people, um, I think growing up in Kentucky, that helped him a lot in that element. And that's something I should have talked about and they live, but I didn't. Oh, well, we'll move on. Um, but you have this dangerous street gang who are basically these monsters who you almost want to say is without reason, but they're not developed at all. But not to the movie's detriment. It makes them so much scarier to see them like gun down a little girl. Um, and that scene, as much as I think Carpenter has kind of says he probably wouldn't do that now, I think is such a key moment of this film to show how cruel the villains are. And I think he uses a lot of that idea in a sense, like this is a group of people who are all these monsters, but I think he almost accompanies that uh, in his next film, Halloween, two years later. Um, it's a very Western-y vibe. It's very, um, it, you know, you have the siege narrative where you're kind of doing the same things over and over again, but it never feels that way. And of course, there's the, um, there's the, there's, it, it's basically a guy who's on death row and a guy who is on the last day of a police station having to work together for the common goal. Like, and it's that, that is such a power to, to see, um, these people who are very, very rational and just want to work together. Um, and it, it gives you this sense of, uh, catharsis that I think is so cool. Um, Solid Precinct 13, definitely watch it if you've somehow missed it. Fantastic movie. All right, here's going to be my hottest take, I think, of this. So we are at it's number seven. So this is in my top seven, and I'm going to get a lot of judgment for this. Um, like I mentioned before, the 90s was kind of a tough part for Carpenter. I think a lot of his stuff has been reevaluated, and I really think this is going to be the next one because I love, love, love this movie. And it's his 1998 film Vampires with with James Woods and Daniel Baldwin and Cheryl Lee. The church enlists a team of vampire hunters to hunt down and destroy a group of vampires searching for an ancient relic that will allow them to exist in sunlight. I will die on the hill that this movie is so much fun. Like, it has a great score. I mentioned the score just a minute ago. This one is one of my favorites from him. Um, James Woods is actually, I think this is one of his best roles. And I famously, um, Sis, uh, Siskel actually voted for me. And, I don't agree with Siskel a lot. Agree with him on here. This is James Woods best role. And I won't go as far as he did. He said that, um, Woods deserved an Oscar for vampires. And like I said, I won't go that far, but this movie is so much fun. And it looks beautiful. This is probably the closest to a Western. These two movies I've talked about, Assault on Precinct 13 and Vampires, are by far the closest two films he ever got to making a Western. And it's gorgeously cinematography. This was, um, he worked with Dean Cundy for a lot of his career. And this is with him with, uh, I want to say his name is Gary B. 
Gary B. Kibbe, um, who he worked with quite a bit in the 90s, it was their best work together. I really think they were on a they, – they were trying to figure it out together, and I think they finally mended together. And I think this is the best example of it. We'll talk about another one they did together, but this one is the one where I think they were on the same page, and it's a cool movie. Uh, it's got cool characters. Uh, seriously, if you haven't seen Vampires in years, please check it out. Please check it out again. Um, as far as release goes, Indicator put this out, and I love that Indicator set. I also have the Screen Factory uh, one they did. Uh, I couldn't tell you which one's better. I think I have only seen the indicator release simply because I just like the release better. And it's usually the first one I grab, uh, but grab either one. I'm sure screen factories looks fine. Of course, read reviews and figure that out. But that is number seven. And we are going on to number six, which is probably one of the most different for Carpenter in his career, but it also the most Carpenter movie of the bunch, which is 1984's Starman. When an alien takes form of a young widow's husband and asked her to drive him from Wisconsin to Arizona, the government tries to stop them. Uh, this has Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen in it, um, who have this amazing chemistry. So they don't really go, yeah, they kind of touch on it, but there, there, there is this instant relationship between them because he doesn't act anything like her husband. He just has her form. And you kind of have to build this love story in a way. It's not just him as a surrogate for a husband, but it's someone she really cares about. And this is so different for Carpenter in that sense of a genre film. Like, yeah, it's got the sci-fi elements in it, but it's a very human story. And this was right after, this was two years after um, The Thing and a year after Christine. And, you know, I think I think it was a movie that was needed for Carpenter after the failure of The Thing. Um, because, he, you know, I think he wanted to figure out how to make a you know, this movie that's very popular. I've heard so many people say they didn't even know Carpenter didn't uh, directed this movie. And it's for a good reason. It's so different for him. But he has such a human element. And I think this is one of those movies where it really shows his worldview on things. Like, people kind of talk about the humorous side of him and the sense of his personality. But it very much is a very humanly positive film. Like, you know, this is a movie that is highlighting some of our worst elements but it also really highlights our best as as, as humans and it's very beautiful in that sense it's a, it's a very gorgeous movie um it's just, not a lot more i can say about it it just it, it, it's one of those ones that kind of, if you want a, a carpenter movie to kind of get you in the field Starman is the way to go all right so that was number six uh that as a screen factory release before i forget we're on the top five, guys. Five more, um, and most of these are going to be pretty obvious. Um, but, hey, listen to me talk about movies that have been over-talked about for years and see what order I put them in. You'll know my number one if you don't. If, uh, I'm sorry, I mentioned it like a hundred times. But we'll get there. We're, we're five away. Let's do number five. In the Mouth of Madness, which I do place as his best 90s film. This came out in the year I was born in 1994. Uh, with the disappearance of hack horror writer Sutter Kane, all hell is breaking loose, literally. Author Kane, it seems, is, has a knack for description that really drips eepy, uh, evil, creepy, crawl ties to life. Jesus, what a, what, a, what a sentence. Insurance investigator John Trent, played by good old Sam Neill, is sent to investigate Kane's mysterious vanishing act and ends up in a sleepy little East Coast town of Hobbs End. So, um, 
the, when I read my review for this years ago, um, I guess last year, about a year ago, this to me was Carpenter solidifying himself in this Mount Rushmore of horror. We have, of course, H.P. Lovecraft and um, Stephen King here. And Carpenter is taking elements from both of them, it seems, and making a mouth of madness. And I feel like solidifying himself in that same pantheon. Um, he really takes that influence and makes it his own. Uh, mentioning like the the Sutter Kane having the fake novels and stuff, really reminiscent of what he would do later with Cigarette Burns, uh, who is it seems very much like a Stephen King stand-in. Um, and of course, Hobbs End is a very much a H.P. Lovecraft type of story. It is just, oh God, I keep hating to say the word fun, but it really is. Uh, Sam, Sam Neill gives, this is my favorite Sam Neill performance. Uh, Possession, I like better as a movie, but as far as performance goes, Sam Neill kills him in this movie. And of course, there's been many gifts uh, of his that get used a lot because he's in that scene with the movie theater where he's laughing maniacally. And I think that's caused some, you know, people who look back at this film this is one of those examples where it wasn't popular when it came out, but he's really gained a fan base. And for great reason, I'm honestly like kind of flabbergasted that this was looked at so negatively when it, well, not negatively, like super negatively, but it wasn't beloved when it came out because like, if I'm watching these things and I've watched, you know, things, um, I'm trying to think what, what it came out before this memoirs of an invisible man or something like that. I would be like Carpenter's back in form right now. Uh, that's how I would look at this film. Like it is one of his best horror films. Uh, it's one of his best films in general. It's seriously like, if you like Stephen King, you like HP Lovecraft, check out in the mouth of madness. I don't think you'll be disappointed if you've kind of avoided it. Top four. This is everyone's top four. I would say, uh, so it's just really about what order you put in. So, um, in Mouth of Madness, I don't know if I mentioned it has a Screen Factory release. So, in Escape from New York, I also have two releases for this one before I forget. I have the Screen Factory Steelbook, and I have the, um, oh, God, Studio Canal uh, release. I need to get the 4K release for, screen, for this one. Um, I haven't gotten around to it yet, but I'm sure it looks great. Uh, Chow, uh, the one from Studio Canal looks great, even though it's a little... I don't know. It looks like the encoding is not the best, but it's still a good looking one. So in 1997, the island of Manhattan has been walled off and turned into a giant maximum security prison in which the country's worst criminals are left to form their own Antarctic uh, society. However, when the president of the United States, played by Donald Pleasant, so he would be the best president, uh, crash lands on the island, the authorities turn into former soldiers and current convicts to rescue them. So uh, this is uh, the second film between uh, Kurt Russell and John Carpenter. And this is really when they're going to hit their stride because Snake Plissken is probably one of the coolest characters in film. I kind of alluded to that earlier, but seriously, like he just oozes this cool outlaw feel to him. Um, really the only disappointing thing about Escape from New York is that the cover, it does not happen in the movie with like the fallen Statue of Liberty head I don't know if it would necessarily make sense uh, how that would actually happen, but that's such a cool and iconic poster that I wish it was in the film. Uh, that's really my only complaint about it. Um, it has this thick atmosphere from him and Dean Cundy uh, that they really created well together. Um, the way Carpenter uses dark space, um, Halloween, of course, is going to be the number one way he used it. Escape from New York 
he made a seedy New York and I think St. Louis. And that's impressive. And it, you know, I, I, this was uh, one of my favorite fun facts about this is the matte paintings for New York were done by good old Jimmy Cameron uh, before he would go on, I guess right before he would do Terminator, right? It's an 84 film. So a few years before that, before he really gets his stuff out there, uh, James Cameron works on this. Um, yeah. Uh, these, the, the sad thing about these like top four is I, I don't want to say much because these are things that people talked about ad nauseum. Um, and, but, but for absolutely good reason, uh, escape from New York is just great. And there's going to be, you know, my top four, three of them have Kurt Russell in them. So we'll have plenty of time to talk about him, but my favorite performance from Russell, even though it's my, my favorite film with him in it is going to be my number three film, which is big trouble in little China. Uh, as far as releases go, sprint factory steel book and arrow steel book arrow put out a steel book for this. And I really like that one. Um, so adventure doesn't come any bigger when trucker Jack Burton agreed to take his friend Wong Chi. I apologize if I screw up any names here. It's not on purpose to pick up his fiance at the airport. He never expected to get involved in a supernatural battle between good and evil. Wang's fiance has emerald green eyes, which make her the perfect target for a moral sorcerer, Lopan and his three invincible cronies. Lopan must marry the girl with green eyes so he can regain his physical form. This is a bonkers movie. But my God, is this movie so much fun. This was another one of those. This was kind of this a rare 80s, well, not the rare 80s, but this is one of these 80s movies where people, I think, really misinterpreted what the film was about. This one gets a, got a lot of criticism for white savior trope. Ironically, because the whole film is criticizing that trope. Like, Jack Burton is not the savior in this film. Like, anything he does, he does by accident. He's overly cocky, but he's not the hero. He at no point is the hero. It's his friend Wang Chi uh, is the real hero of the film. But it takes it, it just boggles my mind to see it because it's it, Jack Burton kind of plays this perfect uh, ignorant American who thinks he's got everything under control, and it works so well. He's still so likable. Like even the other people who the all the other like. Um, Chinese characters who are working with him really like him. They just think he's an idiot. And he is. He's he's very funny. Um, Kurt Russell's one of my favorite performances by him. Um, he really gives it his all. Um, and of course, I can't go on without Victor Wong, who I'm a huge fan of. And you've seen me mention every time he's in one of Carpenter's film. The reason I'm a big fan of Victor Wong is because of Tremors. Um, I think everyone expects something else, but it's it's Tremors. I love him in that film. Um so, yeah, this is Big Trouble, and it is one that's so easy to rewatch. Um, this is probably, to me, his most rewatchable film. Even though it's not my favorite, it's my number three. But I can t if I'm having a bad day, I can turn this one on and just have a blast doing it. Um, so our number two, it's number one and number two is really where people question, like, you know, Either one of these films could be somebody's number one so easily, and they are for the most part. But for number two for me is going to be his 1982 film, The Thing, Man is the Warmest Place to Hide. In remote Antarctica, a group of American research scientists are disturbed at their base camp by a helicopter shooting at a sled dog. When they take the dog, it brutally attacks both human beings and, and uh, canines in the camp, and they discover that the beast can assume the shape of its victims. A resourceful uh, helicopter pilot, Kurt Russell, 
and Camp Doctor leads the camp uh, crew to a desperate, gory battle against the vicious creatures before it picks them all off one by one. When it, we talk about Carpenter, um, you know, it getting, his movies getting reevaluated later, this is the one people really think about. And just full disclosure, uh, I have the Shout Factory Steelbook, one of the best looking, like the, the fit as the best looking for the film. I haven't seen the 4K yet, but I would be shocked if it actually looked better than that Steelbook did because they did a 4K scan for the Steelbook only. Um, and I have uh, Arrow release. And I'm going to get the Studio Canal one. I just haven't gotten it yet, but it's on my list. Um, but the thing is, the this horror movie that you look back on and you're like, how did people not love this when it came out? And I know people bring up the E.T. thing, and that could be true. I'm not saying it's untrue. But my God, everything about this movie is iconic. Um, the poster, I believe Drew Struzan was the one who did the poster. I love it. I would, it's one of those, I think one of the best posters ever made. Um, of course, this is a remake of the film Thing from Another World, but they are almost nothing alike. This is a little bit closer to what at the time was the novella who goes there, which I think they have even found more information on that in the last few years. So I think there's even been more added. Um, this is just oozes with so much atmosphere, so much paranoia, um, uh, and, you know, this is what I kind of talked about Prince of, uh, Prince of Darkness, that the characters are either indistinguishable or they're unlikable. That is not the case in the thing. You have incredibly intelligent characters who are trying to make the best intelligent decision but still be human beings who are going to panic, who are going to make bad decisions. But at the end of the day, they are doing the best they can against an impossible situation. Um, and, you know, I, this has one of my favorite... Uh, you know, I think Kurt Russell is not as funny as he is in um, Big Trouble in Little China, but he still has some great moments that are just hilarious, and he brings so much charm and personality to McCready as a character. Uh, but at the beginning of the film, he's playing a chess match against the computer, which I think at the time, those computers were worth a ton of money, and he loses against her, and he pours his whiskey into the computer and just says, cheating bitch, and walks away. I think it sums up McCready as a character so well. Um, and, you know, Kurt Russell, of course, does an excellent job. Him and Carpenter just had it together. Um, they they knew how to work well with each other. Keith David, uh, of course, him and Carpenter work again together, and they live, and he's great in it. He's, he's this foil to Kurt Russell's character. And, um, of course, people know the end, but just in case, I'm not going to spoil it. Um, it's classic, and I'm so glad it got reevaluated because it deserves it. So number one, which is no surprise to anyone, I'll probably end up keeping this short because of that, is 1978, John Carpenter's Halloween. Uh, Fifteen years after murdering his sister on Halloween nights in 1963, Michael Myers escapes from a mental hospital and returns to a small town of Haddonville, Illinois, to kill again. I'm, I'm struggling. Like, I guess I'll go over uh, the many editions uh, of this film I have. I have the New Screen Factory 4K. I have the Lionsgate 4K Steelbook. I have another uh, Halloween steelbook. Um, I have the uh, edition that came with the 15 disc set from Spring Factory. I own this movie a lot. I love this. Uh, I love this film to pieces. This is my earliest memory. Um, I think my mom, you know, who got me into horror with this film, it scared me to death. Like I had the same sort of closet um, growing up that they have near the end of the film. 
And I think that's what really, really, you know, made it eerie for me and really made me identify with this because it's so hard to understand. Like this is so, such a simple film, everything about this. Yes. Black, uh, Black Christmas came out before the Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out before. And as great as those movies are, I mean, Texas Chainsaw is in my top, probably my, it's definitely my top 10 movies, but Halloween revels in its simplicity. It really, really does. And there's a reason it's become a staple. We're at 44 years later now. I mean, this year. Um, and of course the series is still going strong. Like of all the franchises that you could have been created from Carpenter, Halloween has been the mainstay. It has been his career. Um, it has been that recurring check that comes in. And it's so great to have Carpenter back doing the music. Um, for David Gordon Green's trilogy. And while those have been divisive for me, those have been what I've wanted out of a Halloween film for a long time. And, you know, that's kind of the fascinating thing. We've seen the directors who have taken over from this, uh, whether it be Dwight B. Little, whether it be Rob Zombie, David Gordon Green, um, Rick Rosenthal. They, they can kind of, if they do it right, they can do their own thing because of how simple Carpenter made this film. You can, it is a, it, just like Michael Myers is, it's a blank canvas. And I, I feel like, you know, I, I will trash the Rob Zombie stuff for years and I always will, but I will give him credit for making it his own. And that's what the intention was, even if they're not good. Uh, I'm a little bit better on David Gordon Green, who I think has made some of the best films in the franchise. Uh, yes, that includes Halloween Kills. I'm a huge fan of it. Um, but it's because David Gordon Green has done a great job of what Carpenter of mixing Carpenter and himself, which is, I think is what Carpenter did for Christine, which is interesting that the Halloween ends is being compared to Christine. I'm very curious how that goes. We'll see if this ages well. I think it will. Um, but yeah, Halloween, I, I can't say a lot about it that hasn't been said. This movie uh, is a staple of horror. It is, um, it, it's in the top horror lists of all time. And him and uh, Dean Cundy, created their best work together here. Um, it's it's a, um, not a whole lot more I can say. Seriously, Halloween's coming around uh, here in several months. Watch it. Enjoy it. I'm going to be watching it again, of course. I'll be watching it before the new movie comes out because I'm going to do a whole Halloween, Halloween 2018, Halloween Kills right before I see ends. Um, but this is the one that started it all, and it's still the best one, and to me, one of the greatest, if not the greatest film ever made. That's it, guys. We got through all the 23, and it only took me how long? Oh, my God, I'm at an hour and 15 minutes. I don't know how Chris got through uh, 30 Kurosawa films in less than an hour. I'm actually super impressed because uh, I had seven less. So that's it, guys. We made it through. Um, this was a lot of fun, and I'm sorry if I rambled a lot. I hope this comes out enjoyable. Uh, and if you made it to the end, thank you so much for listening. But if you even got, if you even skipped around to see what my orders were and you skipped that, I appreciate that all the same. Um, and if I get to do this again, we'll see who I'm going to be doing. Like I said, I'm about to do a Bong Joon-ho. I'm about to actually finish him up. Uh, there's a couple that I've been missing that I need to get around to. So I'll be finishing those up. So that may be my list next time with uh, somebody else since his is short. Uh, but thank you so much for listening. And um We'll catch you soon with all three of us together soon. And maybe me and Chris will do something together. Haven't decided yet, but I hope you guys really enjoy these lessons and take care.